that is the last chapter of Ecclesiastes, um, finishing up this warm, fuzzy book this morning. Um, thanks be to God for this healthy dose of pessimism. Um, and so we're going to jump in and see how this book gets buttoned up. And so we're going to be in Ecclesiastes 1 through 8, and then we'll finish out, and that will be that. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 1, it says this. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain, and the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed. And the doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high, and the terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. And ultimately, that's Solomon's mic drop, and then he's done for the rest of the book. Um, But we enter this latter section, we're reminded of this theme that we've heard uh, over and over again, interwoven, that... um, Death is real, and it wasn't the plan of God. We we get this reminder of this theme, this pain, this sorrow that death brings to the table. Um, You know, death wasn't the plan, but man, we swim in the sorrow of life, the pain of life, anxiety riddled with uh, worries of this of this life that we can feel. See, the the writer of Ecclesiastes, what we've found as you've navigated through this with us, and if you haven't, we have it online, but the writer doesn't pull any punches. I mean, there's been times where it's been like, dang, man, just chill out. Like, that has been our reality. He says things that you didn't think you could say in church. Some of you have been like, you can say that? Yeah, you can. Um, But there's this honest assessment of pain, honest assessment of, of life, You know, death wasn't a part of the design, but here we are. The story of the Bible gives us a lot of clarity to life. Um, Some of you have been walking with Jesus for years. Some of you grew up in the church. Some of you are just kind of dipping your toe and just curious about this Christianity thing. Um, But the Bible gives us this clear picture of why we're here, what's happening, where we came from, where we're going. And there's kind of four themes, kind of at a macro level, that we can see throughout the scripture. The first is that uh, creation, that God created everything good with this design of beauty that, that he orchestrated and put his imprint upon this world and our universe. He created everything good. But the, the Bible continues and says that there's a fall there was this fracture that took place that, that shattered our reality, that sin entered, and by sin, death entered, and now we live in this world that's marred with death and sorrow and pain. The Bible speaks to that, brings clarity to that. And then third, it reminds us of the story of, rest, uh, of redemption, 
We find that it's tethered in the Advent story that we're about to get into over the next several weeks that we get these promises that God's gonna bring forth this one, the shoot of Jesse. He's gonna bring forth this one, the Prince of Peace. He's gonna bring forth this one, this mighty God and everlasting Father. He's gonna bring forth this one to bring about redemption, to pay for the penalty of sin and death. He's gonna bring forth justice to the world. So we see creation, fall, redemption, then we see restoration, that God's gonna make all things new, truly. And that's just not some neat way to end the story, but it's the way that the story is going to end, that God's going to restore everything. We've said this before, I believe it originates from Gandalf, that everything sad is going to come untrue. And it's true, it's the, uh, Tolkien is taking that from the scripture. That everything sad is going to come untrue. That he's going to restore everything and bring forth justice. And we wait on God who is faithful to do that. And so that's the story that we see throughout the scripture. And this is what we're waiting for. We now wait and hope in a day when Jesus puts death to death forever. We long for that day. And until then, death will mute the beauty of life. We won't experience it to the fullness and Solomon supports this. See, in this text, Solomon uses allegorical imagery to describe the decay of life. He uses this symbolic poem that might have been confusing, and we're going to navigate through it together. Uh, in these first several verses we read, he talks about how what has kept your house will decay you as you age. And so he talks about the, the in verse, um, what is it? Yes, uh, verse 3, he says, the stronger men, that's your legs. He's going to talk about parts of our body that are going to decay. So the, the stronger men, are, your legs are going to give way. Man, I'm 36. I wake up, my legs are aching. It didn't happen a decade ago. And some of you are much older than me, and you feel it. Like, it's like a work to get out of bed. Well, this, yeah, amen, brother. Um, and so the stronger men, like our legs will feel that. The grinders are your teeth. Over time, they begin to want to run away. And the effects of that as you get older. Talks about the windows, which are your eyes, become dimmer. Talks about the doors of the streets are shut and grinding is, is low. It talks about the daughters of song. It means the hearing loss begins to take place. These decays of the body. One rises up at the sound of a bird. It talks about the difficulty of sleep as you get older. Talks about the um, terrors are in the way. It talks about how the speed of life brings about anxiety as you become more aware of life and the pain that, that is there. Talks about the almond tree, which is a reference to hair or a lack of it. Talks about uh, grasshoppers, and it talks about it's, it's harder to move as you get older. And then lastly, desire fails. There's a, 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 a change in sexual things. And so it's the Bible, man. It's just here. And so the decay is a part of life for us. But it wasn't the design. And you know, it's, it's interesting is we've, we've become so accustomed to death. Um, when I went to Florida, my, my parents are from Jacksonville. And so when, when their parents were around my grandparents, we would go and we'd visit them. Uh, and weeks like this one coming up, we'd go down and, and see um, my grandparents. We typically stayed with my, my dad's parents, but we'd visit um, my mom's parents. They were both in Jacksonville. I mentioned my yaya, my grandfather, um, the OG Ernie, um, uh, a couple of weeks ago. So his wife was nanny, nanny and yaya. And so both my nanny and my grandma uh, were very spunky 
women. They were just, they were a hoot. Um, but we would stay at my nanny's house. She lived much longer than my yaya did. Uh, and so we would go and we'd stay at her house. Uh, and in her backyard, there was a train track. And so every once in a while, trains would go by. Um, and, and you become accustomed to that when you'd stay there. But whenever, as I got older and maybe brought friends down to um, my nanny's house, when a train would go by, it would be startling. It would wake you up. But for me, I was used to that, and it wasn't something that would startle me, but it would startle them. And I think we've become so accustomed to death. We forget that it wasn't the design. We forget that this was not what it was meant to be. We can get so used to the realities of life and, and it kind of mutes the yearning and the longing that the scripture invites us into to long for things to become untrue. We've gotten accustomed to death. This wasn't the design though, and it won't always be, but we live in this fractured moment right now. Romans 8, 22 and 23 speak to this, and it says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We long for this. We long for God to restore and make things new. And that has been put upon our hearts to look forward to that. Death was not always meant to be. And then we arrive into the last few verses. And notice how the speaker changes. It says this in verse 9. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, be aware of... Uh, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So the narrator comes up and distills everything. It's like the MC came up, Solomon is now left, and the MC is responsible to summarize everything that Solomon has just said. I mean, a lot of work, right? Like, he, you gotta distill and kind of put all the pieces together. And he summarizes it all. And he says, if you wanna summarize the whole thing, fear God, keep his commandments. If you wanna condense the 12 chapters that we've gone through over the last 12 weeks, if you wanna summarize it all, fear God and keep his Commandments. This is how he wraps up this gift of Ecclesiastes. He puts the bow on this gift. And he says, let me summarize it for you. Fear God and keep his commandments. So fear God. Let's break this down. When we think of fear, uh, we can think of being frightened or scared. A, a monster of sorts. Uh, the things that keep us up at night. We can think of those types of fears. But biblical fear, uh, fearing God is not at all like that. God is not a monster, so we don't need to respond to him in that way. There's 37 references in Ecclesiastes to God, and none of which are pointing to that view of God. See, fearing God is, about, is not about God being a monster, but about where we place God in our lives. That's the point of fearing God. It's where we put him in the scope of our 
life. See, fearing God is putting him front and center in our lives. That is what it means to fear God, to put him front and center in your life, to respect him, to honor him, to worship him. Proverbs 1 says that the fear of the Lord, fearing God, is the beginning of all knowledge and wisdom. All knowledge, all wisdom can be summed up into fearing God. To fear God is to put God front and center in your life. It's about allegiance. It's about affection. It's about putting him above everything else, everything under the sun, putting him above that. It's not about horror and being scared. C.S. Lewis, he tried to summarize, he tried to put into uh, allegory this concept of fearing God, and he, he attempted to do so in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So there's this scene where these, you know, four kids have found their way into Narnia, and Edmund has now kind of gone sideways, and so now, uh, what are their names, Susan and Lucy and Peter are now chasing and trying to find Edmund. Edmund's under the control of the White Witch, and so... Um, in this story, we see that they, they meet up with these beavers. And some of you, if you haven't read it, like, just go read it, man. Audible. It's not going to take very long. Use your imagination. It's good for you. And so the, the beavers introduce uh, these three kids in Narnia. Um, they uh, introduce um, these kids to this, this um, character named Aslan, who's the great lion. And I want to read a little bit of the script that takes place. It says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they are either braver than most or else just silly. Then isn't he safe, said Lucy? Safe? said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. He's not safe, but he's good. So you can't put Aslan as a depiction of God into a box and try to control him. You have to submit to him and trust him with your life, the author of life, the creator and sustainer of all things. We submit to him and we see that the design is for him to be central in our lives. That's where we find true humanity. We don't tr find true humanity in being autonomous. That's what our culture tells us. If you just find yourself... And that is enslaving, submitting, freeing, letting go of control, and submitting to him is where you find life. You will never find life in trying to find it through autonomy. That is a dead end at, yeah, it's, it's, it's destructive. It's a prison. See, Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature, and like Proverbs, it provides another angle of how to approach life. Proverbs is more optimistic, and Ecclesiastes is more pessimistic, but it, it provides wisdom to us. In all wisdom literature, fearing God is a recognition of who he is as our creator and who we are as his creation. So fearing God is about understanding who God is, and it's about understanding who we are. So let's break that down. Who are we, and who is God? Perspective of who you are. So we live on a rock called earth. It's wild. If you want to get, if you want to get provoked with anxiety, 
Just think about the fact that we're just somehow just floating in the universe, spinning really fast. And somehow gravity's holding us down and we're not flying off this thing. And it's just a rock. Like it's not some like, it's just a rock that we are on and somehow we're still living. And if we were a little closer to the sun, we're melting. And a little further from the sun, we're like a popsicle. And somehow like in the middle of it, we're just existing. And we think we can control it. But I mean, we're just on this functional rock. There are approximately 100 quintillion stars in the universe. There's 23 zeros. Yet in all this immensity, there's only one place we know of that has life that exists. It's just bonkers when you begin to flesh this out. When we think about the sun, it's 93 million miles away. We use that data like it, like it actually means something to us. 93 million miles away. Man, the sun is so big, you could put 960,000 Earths into it. It's just wild. And we're just a speck. We're just a speck on this rock. There's a speck in this Galaxy, this is speck in the universe. It's perspective of who we are, we're seemingly very insignificant. And not just a speck, if we take the words of Solomon, we have no guarantees. We are far less in control than we think that we are. That likely life won't go the way that you thought. Likely life will disappoint you. Just a speck, this little rock called Earth. And on this rock, we are made with God as the author. From one cell from your mother and one cell from your father carrying each 23 chromosomes. The one from your mom was carrying half her DNA. The one from your dad was carrying half of his DNA. And it creates this new cell. And in this cell, we see chromosomes matched. And we see this new life formed with DNA codes and all kinds of crazy stuff. This code begins to write out who God created you and ordained you to be. We're each very insignificant, yet ridiculously complex. St. Augustine said, Men go abroad to wonder at the height of mountains, the huge waves of the sea, the long course of rivers, the vast compass of the ocean, the circular motion of the stars, but they pass by themselves and they don't even notice. And we're both small, but beautifully complex, both insignificant yet marvelously significant, made in the image of God, yet finite. That's who we are, ridiculously lacking control, ridiculously fragile, yet made in the image of God. And then we have God, perspective of who God is. He's nothing like us. He's the only thing in the universe that's never been created. He's always existed. He's great. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God created. He's the one that spoke and things began to exist. He is the beginning. He is the alpha. He is the supreme one. He's holy. He's mighty. He's great and marvelous. He's the creator of all things that are seen and he's the creator of all things unseen. The ruler of the heavens, ruler of, ruler of the earth. The nations will tremble before him. Every knee will bow and confess to this great king. He is great. And yet, like C.S. Lewis tried to wrap up in Aslan, he's, yes, both not safe. He's great, and yet he's good. He's gentle and humble. The first words that God reveals himself as are not words of power, but words of mercy. 
We have to think about how our first thoughts are of God, first of power or first of mercy. See, when God showed up to Moses, he said these words in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. He says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. He goes on. See, the first words ever stated by God about himself is that he is a God of mercy. And what's crazy is you continue that into the New Testament, and the first words that Jesus describes about himself and his heart are that he's gentle and lowly in heart. He's powerful but he's merciful. The great God describes himself, this great God describes himself as one who is gentle and humble. And in the culmination of human history, we see God humble himself into our story to rescue us from sin and death and to reconcile us to himself. So we have to get a, a perspective to fear God. We have to know who God is and we have to know who we are. And fearing God is the beginning of wisdom. So what Solomon is trying to, uh, this, the, the narrator that's including this book is trying to remind us of, to fear God. So why does fearing God lead to wisdom? It's a willful submission. It's a letting go to God and saying that you are God and I'm just your creation. I cannot control. I have to let go. See, cultures change. Our culture is changing right before our eyes, but it also states that you are the designer and you remain the same, even if our culture doesn't. That's wisdom. How does fearing God lead to wisdom? It shapes how we approach life, how we approach money when we know who God is and when we know who we are. It helps us to let go of our grip of money. It helps us become generous. It helps us to become content, to know that we have this moment and we might not have tomorrow, but we can enjoy and appreciate the gifts that God has given to us, not comparing why we don't have that or that or why that family has this and I wish that we had that, but we can live content in what we have here and now. I mean, fear in God leads, leads to integrity, being the same person you are in front of people as you are by yourself, leads to humility. You, not, you are not as great as you think you are, but he is. It's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less, C.S. Lewis says. See, if you take anything from this book, the narrator sums it up as the MC, and he says, fear God and keep his commandments. Commandments, you might ask. Jesus summed up the commandments in loving God with all of your heart and loving your neighbor as yourself. It's the same theme. Jesus, as the greatest, wisest man, wiser than Solomon, says the same thing that Solomon says, to fear God, to love God with all of your heart. See, Solomon, he went on a great experiment. Wanted to see if partying, sex, comfort, success, leaving your mark on the world would make your heart satisfied. And he came out on the other side and he said, no, it's not the case. Fear God. He agrees with the Proverbs. Fearing God is the beginning of wisdom. See, since you can't control your life, the invitation is to stop trying to control your life. Stop worrying about the things that you can't control and choose to enjoy the moment right before you and make God central in your life. See, this life can feel dark, can feel painful, can even feel hopeless at times. And in the end, don't lose hope, but instead 
find your heart humbled. Humbled to the fact that God loved you enough to send his son, uh, loves you enough to breathe life into your lungs even in this moment. See, one day God will clear the fog. And we hope in that. The fog exists. It's different than our fog that we have that exists from like seven to nine and then it, the, the heat removes it, the sun removes it. No, we live in a world where the fog always exists. But one day, we'll see clearly. And we look to that day. So fear God and keep his commandments. Let God be the balance of your life. Don't get caught up in the rat race. Don't get caught up in living on the treadmill over and over again. Recognize that stuff won't cut it for you. If you just, we got Black Friday coming up. We can talk, you know what I mean? It's okay to buy stuff. I'm not opposed to it, but don't, don't look for it to give you what it, it never does. There's gonna be a new set of AirPods. There's gonna be a new TV that comes out that's like 8,000K. Like there's, a, there's always gonna be something newer and better. And so you can buy the things you wanna buy, whatever, but know that your heart's not gonna find at all the satisfaction that it's looking for. Fear God. Remember that you're dust and to dust you shall return. Live life full. Be, be generous with your life. Be content with your life. Live free from an attempt to be God in control and just enjoy what you have here and now. Fear him. Serve him. Make him the chief end of your life. So we learn. So we navigate through Ecclesiastes. Ultimately, make, make him central. That's where you find life. That's where you find what it means to be truly human to find him central, to fear God and keep his commandments. Let's pray.